Father, thank you that when we open the Bible, the book you have written, that you are speaking. Father, even in a passage that just seems at face value like you know, boring travel plans, we know that this is your inspired word and that you're speaking to us through it. And so, Father, I pray that all of us, myself included, would have ears to hear what you're saying this morning. Father, I pray for those of us who come this morning just generally skeptical about Christianity or just sort of checking this whole thing out. I pray that even if we're not sure that you exist, that you would speak to us. Father, I pray for those of us who come uh, believing in you but uh, struggling, exhausted, I pray that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that if we come this morning and we, we love you and are expectant, that you would speak to us. Father, no matter where we've been or what our week has been like or what we've done, we pray that as we look at your word, you would lift up Jesus Christ and fix all of our eyes on him. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words would go forth. That I would say only and always what makes much of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. A week ago, my wife Andrea and I entered a truly new phase of parenting. Uh, our older child, Soren, started T-ball last Saturday. And if you have never witnessed toddler T-ball, it is an absolute comedy show. Because trying to organize 40 toddlers Okay, and bear in mind, this is 40 toddlers all just from my neighborhood in East Falls. Trying to organize 40 toddlers to play t-ball for an hour may be the greatest exercise in futility the universe has ever known. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. And probably both the best and funniest part of toddler t-ball are the coaches. Because these coaches, not all of them even have toddlers. They just come out to coach it because they love it that much and they take it incredibly seriously. Right, so case in point, last week at the end of practice number one, the head coach, she, uh, she gathered us around. Yes, there's a head coach and assistants for toddler T-ball. And she starts to lecture the parents. And here's what she said. Parents, your kids will not become professional baseball players, which by the way, she could have just stopped right there. You know, that's the truth. They are not. Okay, but your children are not going to become professional baseball players simply by practicing with me once a week. You've got to work on the fundamentals at home. It's like, my son is three. Like, really? You know, so, but though they take it a little too seriously, I got to tell you, the, the toddler t-ball coaches are quite good. And I was, I was a bit of a skeptic at first. Uh, especially when they started trying to explain abstract concepts to the toddlers. Okay, so the, the best, and I was dying on the inside, was when they lined up all the toddlers. And they say, this is a very abstract concept for a three-year-old. In order for your throw to have maximum power, <laughs> you need to step with the foot opposite your throwing arm. 
You had a step with the foot opposite your throwing arm for your pitch to have maximum throwing power, which I thought, don't they know we're doing t-ball? No one's pitching. Like, it's, uh, it's, uh, and I'm just sitting there looking at the kids, and my son's eyes just like gloss over because he turned three like a day ago. But I ate my words when just a few minutes later, almost all these toddlers are doing opposite foot, step, throw. You want to know how they did it? Simple. They just gave them examples. They just gave them examples. Like at first, of course, it sounds to a toddler like, foot opposite my throwing arm, like what's that even mean? But then they just had people stand in front of them and over and over show them, foot, throw. But you can tell that I've never played a sport with a ball. My, my son playing t-ball is as far as I ever made it in any sport involving a ball. But all of a sudden, because of concrete examples, this very abstract idea became abundantly clear even to a bunch of three- and four-year-olds. And in a somewhat similar way, throughout our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, he has been trying to cram home a very abstract concept that today Paul is going to make clear through examples. The abstract concept that the Apostle Paul has been exhorting the church at Philippi in throughout our journey is this. He wants the church to adopt the very attitude of Christ in their relationships with one another. He wants them to adopt the very attitude of Christ in their relationships. Here's how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, have this mindset, this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is that the eternal Son of God paid the ultimate price or sacrifice, his own life, in order that we might be redeemed, forgiven, adopted as God's children as a gift by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He sacrificed himself for our eternal good. And Paul's saying, that's the kind of attitude I want you to adopt in your relationships with one another. It's sort of an abstract idea. But Paul, who is a good teacher, just like the toddler t-ball coaches is now going to make this abstract idea concrete by showing us two examples. Two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, from now on we will simply call Epaphroditus E for my own sake. And he's going to show us these two men who are examples of what it looks like to adopt Christ's attitude toward one another. You see, at first glance, this passage simply looks like boring travel arrangements, but it's so much more than that. See, the big idea of our passage this morning, Paul's trying to tell the Philippians, these are men who have followed Christ. And the big idea is, follow those who follow Christ. Follow those who follow Christ. Now, what in the world does it look like 
to follow those who follow Christ. The Apostle Paul is going to give us three pictures of what it looks like to follow Christ in this passage. The first is he's going to tell us to first seek Christ's interests. That's the example. Seek Christ's interests. Secondly, be anxious for Christ's people. And then finally, sacrifice for Christ's mission. The very first way we follow those who follow Christ is by making Christ's interests the controlling factor in our life. Making Christ's interests the controlling factor in every aspect of our life with no compartments left out. See, whether you are a follower of Jesus or somewhat skeptical about all things religion, one thing we can probably all agree on is that Timothy and E are radically others-oriented people. Notice what they've done. Both of them have left their homes. In the case of Timothy, he's left Rome in order to go to Philippi. In the case of E, he's left Philippi in order to go to Rome and take care of Paul. Both of them have uprooted their home probably sacrificed a ton of money, left their families in order to serve the needs of others. And you start to wonder, why? Are they just like religious do-gooders? Why do they do this sort of thing? And we get a picture of why in verses 21 and 22. Paul first describes other Christian leaders, and he says, for they all seek their own interests not those not the interests of Jesus Christ but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel he says they all seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ but Timothy's different the thing the primary controlling factor in his life is Christ's interests That's why he's willing to uproot his life for the sake of others. Timothy's not so concerned about himself anymore, his own interests, how things are going to go, his own perfect balance in his schedule. No, he's lost himself for the interests of Christ. This is the radically reorienting power of the gospel. The gospel changes what we seek most in life. See, the gospel, if you're somewhat new to Christianity, is the very heart of what we as followers of Jesus believe. It's the great news that though the holy creator God should condemn us forever because of our sin, this holy creator God is forgiving and adopting a people for himself, sinners like us as his very own children, though we don't deserve it. He's adopting us as his own by grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone. The gospel is the great news that God has sought our interest to the point of sending his son to be crucified on our behalf. And you see, when you've come to believe that God has sought your interest to the point of death for his son, then you're free to no longer seek your own interests as the number one pursuit of life. The radical reorienting power of the gospel is that the gospel tells you Jesus sought your interest so you don't have to be so concerned with your own. That's the power of the gospel. See, around here at City Light, we often say that our mission, the reason reason we exist is to make disciples of Jesus, to help people follow Jesus. 
And the first mark of someone who follows Jesus is the gospel redoes their identity such that we become worshipers of God. See, but here's the dirty little secret about worship. Whether you're religious or not, we all worship something. Because to worship something is really to ascribe something with ultimate worth. And whatever you do that to, that's what you seek first in life. So if what you say is of ultimate worth is your career, you will seek first a career. And you'll make sacrifices for it. If your God is family, then you will seek first family, you'll sacrifice everything for it. If it's money, same thing. If it's sex, same thing. And the radical reorienting power of the gospel is that it frees us from worshiping self so that we can seek the interests of Christ. So let's make this personal for a moment. How about you? Have you experienced the radical reorienting power of the gospel? Have you come to believe the good news that Jesus went in your place? Living the life you should have lived, a sinless life, dying the death you deserve to die, a sinner's death so that you would not perish eternally but have life everlasting. Have you come to believe that great gospel? Because if so, that gospel reorients all of life. You're now free from self-seeking so that you can seek the interests of Christ. It's true freedom. You know, there's one particular evidence that you can look at if you want to test this. If you want to test if you've experienced the reorienting power of the gospel such that the thing that governs your life is the interest of Christ, here's all you have to do. Ask yourself, are the interests of Christ the primary thing that determine my geography and my priorities? you want to know, have I experienced the radical reorienting power of the gospel? Just ask yourself, are the interests of Christ the primary thing driving my geography and my priorities? You see, for Timothy and Epaphroditus, the reason they're willing to leave home and go to one place or another to send and be sent is because the primary thing that governs their life is the interest of Christ. So if it's the interest of Christ to move, they'll move. If it's the interest of Christ to stay, they stay. And how about you? Is it primarily your career that determines where you live? Or is actually the first question you ask, Jesus, what is your interest in where I live? Now that may result in you moving for your career or staying for your career. It's all about what question do you ask first? Should I spend this time with my family or should I spend this time with my career? You know, these sorts of questions, they're all good. But the fundamental one is, what would it look like, Jesus, for me to be seeking your interest with this family, with my money, with my time, my priorities, and my geography? Have you experienced that radical reorienting power of the gospel such that you're free from self-concern because you know God is infinitely concerned for you? There's a young man in our church uh, who started following Jesus just a a few months ago and he's become a good friend of mine. And uh, 
he and I were talking the other day and he told me that over the last couple of years while living in Philly, his sort of like number one pursuit, the thing he was seeking, was to get a promotion at work so that he could move to his company's headquarters uh, on the West Coast. And when we met up, I asked him, you know, how are things going seeking out that promotion? And I was kind of blown away when he said to me, I'm not really actually going after that all that hard right now. I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, I actually, since becoming a follower of Jesus, really feel like in order for me to, he didn't use this exact language, but seek the interests of Christ for myself and others, I think the best place for me to be right now is right here. He's not saying I'll never move. He's not saying I'm enslaved to live in Philadelphia. What he's saying is my career pursuits are not the number one governing factor behind where I live. He's not saying, I'll move wherever I will make the maximum amount of money. Now, he may end up moving for his career and he may end up getting the maximum amount of money, but he's governed by Christ's interests first. And the reason he knows he is is because that's the first question he asks. What would it look like for Christ's interests to be the first thing I seek? Now, when the interests of Christ becomes the number one thing you seek, you will find yourself walking into the second mark of those who follow those who follow Christ, which is if you are governed by seeking the interests of Christ, you will be anxious for Christ's people. You'll be anxious for Christ's people. I don't know if you all have noticed, but it seems that about every five years, something else becomes the new smoking. Have you noticed this? About every five years, the pseudo-scientific community tells us that there's something else that all of us are doing that's actually going to kill us very young. And they always say in the articles, X is the new smoking. You know what it was five years ago, right? Sitting. Every article five years ago, sitting's the new smoking, you have a job, you sit at a desk, you're gonna die very young. I was like, man, we live in a world of pessimists. Like, this is ridiculous. But it was like, and, and so all of us are like, Michelle Obama says, get stand-up desks. Let's get stand-up desks because sitting's the new smoking. I don't wanna do that. Gotta survive, here we go. Sitting became the new smoking five years ago. You, know, you wanna know what it is now? Anxiety. Anxiety is the new smoking. When I was making my 2017 like New Year's resolutions, I started researching like what are other people doing for their resolutions? You know what I found in common? It seems that in 2017, everyone is giving up anxiety. Like that's the thing. Like I would even read stuff where it says, this year my commitment is to remove stressful people from my life. This is just code for in 2017, I'm gonna remove people from my life, you know, this, this is what I'm going to do because there are no other kind of people. And so it went from sitting is the new smoking to anxiety is the new smoking and it may be surprising to learn that a life spent seeking or a life governed by seeking the interests of Christ is actually not an anxiety-free life. It's not an anxiety-free life. Why do I say that? Look at how Paul describes both Epaphroditus and Timothy. In verse 26, he describes Epaphroditus this way. He says, For he has been longing for you 
and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Out of love, Epaphroditus is distressed for the Philippians and Paul seems to celebrate it. Even more interesting to me is Paul's description of Timothy. He says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely, and here's the key word, concerned for your welfare. Paul celebrates that Timothy is concerned for the Philippians. Now the reason that's interesting is because the Greek word translated concerned in this passage in most places in the New Testament is translated anxious or anxiety. It's actually the same exact Greek term used in Philippians 4 verse 6 where Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Same exact Greek word. Which seems at face value like a contradiction. You look at it and go, wait, chapter 4 he says, be anxious for nothing. And in chapter 2 he says, be like Timothy. He's anxious about the Philippians. Well, which one is it? So I did a, a little bit of a word study on this term that's often translated anxiety. I was like, well, I wonder how it's used throughout the New Testament. And I found it's very interesting. I found that the word is used very positively in some contexts and negatively in others. In every instance when it's used negatively, the term refers to the natural reaction of a person to the poverty, hunger, and other trials that may befall their daily life. Most common place you see this is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, you know, where you're going to live, where your paycheck's going to come from. He's saying, the godless people worry about those things. God's your father. Don't be so anxious about your life. Don't be worried about yourself so much. It's used negatively. But then the same word is used positively throughout the New Testament when it refers to being anxious for the daily welfare of others. What is my point? The life spent seeking the interests of Christ is actually not supposed to be an anxiety-free life. You know, we, we get this idea sometimes that it's like, okay, I'm following Jesus, I'm just not gonna care anymore. That is not a Christian response. No, the life that is governed by the interests of Christ is free from anxiety for self so that you can be anxious for the welfare of others. And this really is, again, only possible through the power of the gospel. Because the gospel is great news that God was genuinely concerned for our welfare. The gospel's great news that God's concern for us, his anxiety for us, was on display at the cross of Christ. He was so concerned for us that he sent his son to die in our place for our sin and resurrected him on the third day. He's so concerned for us that he promises he'll never leave or forsake us, that he is actually working all things together for good for those who love him. And that means that if you're a follower of Jesus, the cross is proof that God cares for you so you can roll your cares onto him. 
in order to take up the cares of others. We're not set free from anxiety of self just for the sake of it, but so that we can take up the cares of others. That's what we see with Timothy and Epaphroditus. They follow Christ, and that means they're concerned for Christ's people. So here's my question for you. What are you anxious about? What are you anxious about? Maybe not right this minute, but kind of on a normal daily basis, weekly basis. What are the things that you're anxious about? What are you genuinely concerned for? I asked myself this question in my my prayer time this morning before coming over here. Uh, I find it personally to be a pretty convicting question. Uh, Those of you who know me know I get very genuinely concerned before I preach. I get really nervous any and every time I preach, which is interesting because I do this a lot, not just on Sundays. And so I was asking God, like, why do I get so genuinely concerned before I preach? And I really wish I could say that it is primarily and fundamentally because preaching God's word is a huge deal. And I want to do it accurately and in the power of the Holy Spirit and see it have transformative effect. So I'm just so genuinely concerned for others that I'm a little bit anxious. But no, like honestly, a lot of the time I'm anxious because I think, what if they don't think it's any good? What if people wonder, what in the world do we pay this guy for? It's a concern about myself. But the good news of the gospel is that God is so concerned for me that he sent his son for me. Therefore, I can roll my concerns onto him. And I can take up your concerns. That's the power of the gospel in freeing us to seek the interests of others. There are so many examples in this church of people who are genuinely concerned not for themselves but for the welfare of others. And it's inspiring to me. You know, I've just noticed recently, like some of you, I've talked to you and you know you're doing really well at work and you're just being radically generous with your money. It's, It's amazing. Why do you do it? Because you're genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And so you're like, yeah, I mean, I I could sock this away. I could buy this toy. By the way, saving and buying a toy are not wrong. But you've asked, what's Christ's interest? And so many of you, you're just like radically generous. That's amazing. Uh, We've started this partnership with the Whosoever Gospel Mission, where we're seeking to come alongside them to help those who are formerly addicted and homeless. And so many of you have already given your time to that. Why? You're genuinely concerned for the welfare of the people to whosoever gospel mission. I love that. Uh, One of my favorite examples, I'm going to embarrass them and put them on the spot, is right up here, uh, Nick and Julie Kellogg. I mean, just a con... Nick and Julie have one son, and they have a daughter soon on the way. And they live kind of in that crazy world of doing, like, work and grad school and all that stuff all at the same time. And yet... It seems every Sunday they are serving, teaching our kids in the City Light Kids rooms. Why? Because they're genuinely concerned for the welfare of our kids. 
It seems every Sunday they're having friends and neighbors over to eat. Why? Because they're genuinely concerned that their neighbors know and love Jesus. It seems like any time we have a counseling need, Julie's like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it, sure. Why? Because the gospel has freed them from having to be perfectly balanced. The gospel's freed them from constantly worrying, is my schedule getting a little overrun here? The gospel's freed them from being always looking at them and saying, am I doing okay? Is this good? Is this pretty? No. And they're looking outward to others because God's meeting their needs. It doesn't mean you can't say no to stuff, by the way. It doesn't mean you guys can't say no to stuff. You can. But what it means is the fundamental driving factor in saying no is still genuine concern for others. We always have to prioritize. So how about you? What is it that you're primarily anxious for? Is it your own daily welfare? Or is it the interests of others? The gospel is proof that God is infinitely concerned for your welfare. And so you can be free from self-concern, but bound by concern for others, which is true freedom. Now finally, for those who follow those who follow Christ, we, yes, we are governed by the interests of Christ, it's what we seek first, and we are anxious for Christ's people. But finally, we make sacrifices for Christ's mission. That's what Timothy and Epaphroditus do. They're both making sacrifices in different ways for the same mission, the mission of the gospel. See, the mission of the gospel, the mission we're on, all of us, is to help the gospel drill deeper into the hearts of those who already believe it and spread wider to the hearts of those who don't yet. That's the mission of the gospel. Drill the gospel deeper, spread the gospel wider. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are making all sorts of sacrifices to do that in different ways. Timothy is sacrificing being in his home where he wants to be with his spiritual father, Paul, so that he can help the gospel drill deeper into the Philippians. Epaphroditus left his home, made all sorts of sacrifices so that he could serve Paul and Paul could spread the gospel wider. And the Philippians are willing to send and be sent all so the gospel can drill deeper and spread wider. They're making sacrifices for the mission. The truth is, we all make sacrifices for whatever we perceive our purpose is. We all do it. We're all making sacrifices all the time. So if your mission is to be as fit as possible, you sacrifice a lot for that mission, probably some stuff you shouldn't. If your primary mission is earning as much money as you possibly can, you'll sacrifice a lot of things for it, probably some things you shouldn't. If your primary mission is a happy family, you'll probably sacrifice a lot for it, probably some things that we shouldn't. We are all making sacrifices. The question is, are we making sacrifices for the right things? To see the gospel drill deeper and spread wider in our community and outside of it. And very practically, one of the things we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus when it comes to making sacrifices for the mission of the gospel is that they are willing to send and be sent. 
They're willing to send and be sent. This is really important for us here at City Light. Because if you've been around at City Light for more than like six months, you know that things are in a sense always changing around here. Many of you, you're in city groups that you love and in like six to 12 months, they'll grow and they'll start a new group and it won't be the exact same one anymore. Many of you are in discipleship groups with people where you're drilling deep into God's word together and within a few months, you'll split it up and find other people and because you're just wanting the word to go further. Uh, within the next year, we are here at City Light Maniunt going to have to start a third service. Some of us aren't going to necessarily gather with the same exact people that we do now, and it might be at a time that isn't the most convenient. Within three years, we want to start a third City Light congregation. If we are going to drill deeper and spread wider with the gospel, we're all going to need to be willing to send and be sent. But when our hearts are captured by the beautiful vision of seeing this great news of Jesus go deeper into our hearts and spread wider to others, then we're willing to make sacrifices, sacrifice time, sacrifice money, sacrifice comfort, whatever it happens to be. What mission are you making sacrifices for? Is it the lasting one? As we conclude, adopting the very attitude of Jesus can be about as abstract as, you know, Soren's sort of step one foot throw thing. But like a master teacher, Paul has given us two beautiful examples. Imperfect, but beautiful examples to follow. But as we close, I want to lift our eyes from the examples to the real thing to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who truly sacrificed everything in his life, death, and resurrection for us. We're gonna fix our eyes on him throughout the rest of our gathering. Some of the primary ways we're gonna do that first is through communion or the Lord's Supper. So if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, any time during the next three songs, I want to invite you to fix your eyes on Jesus by coming to the communion tables, either in front or in back. There's a gluten-free option in the back corner. Tear off a piece of bread. It's a symbol of Jesus' body that was broken so that we would not be broken eternally. Dip it in the cup. It's a picture of Jesus' blood that was shed so that ours wouldn't be shed in judgment. Take it and eat it and remember Jesus who has sacrificed everything and freed you from self-seeking for the true joy of seeking his interests and being anxious for others. Another way you can fix your eyes on Jesus is through prayer. Prayer is really just speaking back to God in response to what he's said to you through his word. You can do that anytime during the next three songs. You can sit, you can kneel, you can go to the back underneath the prayer signs. There'll be folks that would love to pray with you. If you're here today and you're not yet a committed follower of Jesus, I'd like to invite you to set your eyes on Jesus maybe for the first time today. Maybe you've been a religious good person your whole life or an irreligious good person, but you've never come to believe that your only hope in life and death is Jesus. If that's you today, instead of inviting you to the communion tables, I wanna invite you to Christ. I wanna invite you to give him your sin, receive his forgiveness, and ask him to lead you forever. And you can simply do that where you are with someone in the back. 
by saying, Jesus, I believe that I'm a sinner deserving condemnation, but I believe you took my condemnation on the cross. Would you forgive me and lead me forever? And of course, we will fix our eyes on Jesus through singing songs to him because throughout the Bible, people sing in response to God's mighty acts of deliverance. And there is no greater deliverance than the one we have received. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has delivered us from eternal death and given us eternal life as God's children. And so we will fix our eyes upon him as we sing in response to his mercy. I'll pray and we'll respond to all that God has said to us. Lord, thank you that you are the true example of one who did not grasp. You didn't grasp at your divine rights. You emptied yourself and you took on the form of a servant. You were born in the likeness of men. You lived the life we should have lived and then you were obedient to the Father to the point of death on our behalf. And the Father raised you from the dead and so we want to join in declaring that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so lead us now as we declare your Lordship in song and prayer at the table or perhaps for the very first time. All that we are and all that we do is a response to all that you've done through your life and death and resurrection on our behalf. Amen.